Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Froke, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Casaglo. And today, we have a 30 MPC fan favorite. He was a phenomenal enterprise leader over at Clary, and now he's running teams over at Tropic. It's the one and only Anthony Cesario on the Leadership Edition. Mark, why should people listen? Tony C. brought it today, and let me just say... There's some topics that sales leaders need to listen to, and there's some that are fun to listen to. This could be both if you really love territory construction, because we get into the weeds. And I think it is an extremely important subject. I think that most revenue leaders need to be really versed in understanding of it. So I think that we got into the deep details today of how to construct a territory to make sure that that elite talent feels like you're giving them a chance to make money. That's right. And I'm glad this isn't a webinar because I don't get to listen to you all complain in the chat about your territories. And a three, <laughs> two, one, let's ride. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. All right, Anthony, welcome back to the show. This time on the Leadership Edition, we start every show with your top three actionable takeaways. Let's get your three. So first, how do you hire elite teams of talent? Like genuinely people that are the very best in the world at what they do, how do you build a team that tend to end comprised of those types of people? And the way you do it is 
by focusing on the experiences that these people want to have next in their career. So there's three things you have to do to do that right. First, you need to make that your currency as a leader. Your ability to deliver on these experiences should be how you rate yourself as a leader. Two, you need to focus on the experiences that each individual member on that team want to have. And then you need to think deeply about how do I actually bring them to life? And then three, you actually need to give them these opportunities now. Even if that experience is the next step, next chapter of their career, you need to find ways to give them at least parts of those experiences in their current role. And so let me give you an example. You know, when I was building the enterprise team at Clary, enterprise roles are really hard because there's people that with enterprise sales rep is maybe the best job on the planet. Maybe they don't ever want to do anything else for the rest of their lives. And so on my team, you know, I had one incredible team member named Michael Kenny who wanted to be a leader. And we discussed that from the very get-go, from the interview process. And so what did we do? We gave Michael opportunities to become a leader from the day that he walked in the door. He joined my leadership meetings. He helped build process to scale across the company. So the moment that a leadership opportunity opened up, it was a no-brainer to put Michael into it because he was already doing it. He already had his experiences. Versus I had another member on the same team who just loved to travel the world and have the incredible experiences in life. And he wanted to maximize his W-2. So we had to create a very different career plan for him for how do you like literally create the greatest W-2 in Clary history if we were able to do. Boom. What's number two? Number two. Right now, there's a lot of pressure on getting more output out of less resources with the focus on efficient growth as a company. So how do you drive up ASP? How do you drive up conversion rates with less resources? You need to take what I call a focused capacity approach. So what do I mean by that? One, we need to make sure that we're spending the very limited resources we have as a team on the motions that the go-to-market strategy that we built dictates are most important. So that starts with taking a very data-driven approach to building out your ICP primary, ICP secondary, ICP tertiary, focusing on what are the accounts we want people spending time in. And then two, you need to build equitable territories across those books, across those dimensions. And so we're making sure that every territory we have has an equal chance to go deliver as much revenue as possible. That's also a key factor, number one, by the way. If you want elite talent, especially sales talent, if Mark has a great book and Armand has a crappy book, Armand's going to leave. And so if you want world-class talent, you want to make sure everyone has a fair shot to hit their number as well. Boom. Well, thank you for giving all reps a fair shot. And I will give you a fair shot to have an equitably great third tactic. What's number three? Yeah, sure. As reps, you, you know, you give a lot of presentations, you run a lot of meetings. As leaders, right, you're also giving a lot of presentations that are important as well, both internally and externally. I think in both cases, right, when you're training your team on how to deliver world-class memorable presentations and when you're giving your own, whether that's your executive staff or the board or whoever or your own team, in order to deliver presentations that people are actually going to remember, you should focus on what I call a moments that matter strategy to presentations. So what does that mean? First, you have to define the moments that matter in the meeting. Uh, what I mean by that is, what do you want the most important people in that meeting to walk away saying, thinking, feeling, saying, doing at the end of that meeting? And so second, we also want to think about the resources that you have to create those moments. And then third, we want to plan the entire meeting around those moments. We want to make sure that the success of each component of the meeting is delivering on one of those moments. And then lastly, we just want to make sure that we have the opportunity to actually create these experiences. And so you can do that with an approach I call pattern interrupt. 
All right, dude. I'm very interested in these moments of that matter. But you said something that 99% of reps would disagree with. Equal books. There ain't a rep on the planet that says my book doesn't suck. So take me through it, man. Like if you're creating equitable books, how are you selling the team on it? I would first say in order to create a strategy where you want equitable books, you have to really believe that you have elite talent across that entire team or across consistent talent, I would say, across the team. You know, because the question I get a lot when I brought this strategy up is, well, don't you want your best accounts with your best reps? And my answer is no, all your reps should be your best reps. If you're truly hiring a world-class team, you want everyone to have a fair shot because they're all elite talent and they all can drive revenue for the company. And so first I would just say that's a precursor for this strategy to even work. But assuming you've done a really good job hiring an elite team, I think the way you bring the reps on this journey is you have to be really transparent and detailed, showing them how we created these books in an equitable way taking them through the process step-by-step step. because every rep thinks in the 60 seconds that you just presented this strategy to them, that they figured out in their head with more precision that they know a better way to do it than you. So when you show them that we've been working on this strategy for three months and a lot of people that are equally as smart as these reps and you take them through the process, it usually helps them understand how much thought you know has gone into this and, and why they should feel good about the books. What do you base equality on? Size of prize, number of accounts, equitable geos? Like what does equitable mean in Anthony's world? Uh, you know, it's different. I'm learning, you know, what that means in my new company right now, Tropic, as we, you know, design books for the year. I could tell you what it meant when I was building out Enterprise at Clary. When I got to Clary, our Enterprise books were built on geos, right? So there was like six Silicon Valley territories and four New York territories and what have you. And if your ICP is fairly industry focused, which ours was at Clary is very tax focused initially, the tech hubs for us, anyone who had one of those territories was obviously going to have a much better chance to hit their number than someone who had the Midwest or what have you. And so the first thing we did was one, define, you know, what are the factors that would make a book equitable? So one of those was industry for sure. Nowadays, there's so much intense signal and things like that, that you can get way more data driven for how you want to decide what an equitable book would look like, right? So that could be intense signals, that could be technographic data, things like that. And so once you've decided on those factors, that's usually one part of the matrix. The other one that we used at Clary was we built a concept of addressable ARR at the account level. So we were able to say, you know, based off of the types of users that we would be selling to, we use LinkedIn Sales Insights data to model an addressable ARR by account using a standard PUPY and the number of users that we think are in that account. And then we would build equitable books on that. So how many million dollar plus ARR accounts, 500K plus ARR accounts, all of that goes into the build. So we would say everyone has the equal number of not only ICP-like accounts, but also the equal number of accounts by adjustable ARR bound. And we took the reps through that. And then as the like strategy to follow that, we would tell them, where do we want you to focus your capacity within those books? And so like, for instance, our average time to close in the 100K to 250K bucket was like 206 days in enterprise. The average time to close in the 500K to a million dollar bucket was 240 days. And so showing the reps that like, hey, you can close a 500K deal just as fast as you can close a 100K deal. You might as well get some 500K deals in your pipeline. 
that was one of the things that helped us drive ASPs from like around 100K to over 400K in a couple of years. That's insane results. I mean, to grow the ASP that fast. Listen, I don't know, Armand, if you're down, but like, this is like a fascinating topic to revenue leaders, if you ask me. I think that everybody's trying to figure out how to create books that motivate reps, give everybody an equal chance to participate, line up with the comp expectations, and that you can give the least amount of accounts to a, a somebody and get the most amount of revenue out of them. So I'd be interested, Anthony, to figure out like, so size of prize, like I think you called it, what did you call it? Addressable ARR. Addressable ARR. So this concept basically is you add up the number of seats or usage looks or, you know, you estimate basically how much, if you did a complete sell of the account, how much that account will be worth, right? You add up all the total size of prizes in your account, that gives you how much revenue that that territory should generate. And for size of prize equality, you're looking for all of your reps to be within 10 or 15% of each other in terms of size of prize. That takes care of one thing. But this other one that you said is super interesting, which is how fast does stuff close? And then how do I tier? So did y'all tier out accounts for reps and name the tier one, tier two, and tier three accounts? Or was that an exercise that your reps did? And then you took that data in? Both. One of the concepts that I really believe in, you know, as a revenue leader is you want to make the rep CEO of their territories. And so the approach that I would take was I would give them the data on their business and show them, hey, here's the segments within your business, right? 500K plus, million dollar plus, 100K plus, 50K plus, whatever. Here were the win rates in each of those segments last year. Here were the ASPs in each of those segments last year. Here were the average time to close in those, right? And then we give them the book and say, here's your territory. Here's how many accounts you have in these. I'm not going to tell you how to hit your revenue number, but hopefully this data is helpful for you to focus your calories on the right parts of the business. And so we would make recommendations saying like, hey, you should focus here. Now, that is on like the size within the accounts, right? Like, as I mentioned earlier, on the tiering of like the actual accounts we want them focused on, that was a little different. We would say, we do want you to prospect through your first focus accounts first, like touch every first focus account before you move on to your next focus and your last focus. And that focus category is an organic concept. As they're touching these accounts, they might say, oh, that's not like a competitor on a three-year contract. That's the last focus account now. So we would keep that organic throughout the year. But we did want to make sure they were not selling to the Philadelphia Phillies and, you know, when we're like an ICP tech focused company or something. And so both, yeah, we would give them the data around the tiering and then we would ask them to, you know, build their own strategy leveraging that data. But I'm a Phillies fan. I want them to be a customer. Can I go talk to them, please, Anthony? Me too. Let's go. I mean, you and I can probably <laughs> figure out something to sell the Phillies. <laughs> So let's go back a little bit, Anthony, and I want to talk before it gets into a rep's hands. There were really two ingredients in Anthony's magic meatloaf. Number one is relation to ICP industry. Are they tech or not? Right. And then the second is the size of the prize. And so that's a pretty easy, simple to understand way to rank a territory, right? Everyone gets this many tech companies and then this is the distribution of size across those 10 tech companies that we're giving you, right? I've seen other territory models that have like 17 point scoring methodologies and 45 degrees into the meatloaf so that 
if they reached out to you in the past, it's one point. But if they reached out and there was a closed loss opportunity due to product, it's negative two points. And it gets super, super overwhelming and complex. How do you strike the balance between the fact that you probably missed some criteria? For example, no previous closed loss opportunities on the account. But at the same time, it's really nice and simple what you've built. I don't think it's a straightforward answer. It really depends on the size of your SAM as a company, right? And so when I say SAM, I mean serviceable, adjustable market. People love to talk about their TAM, which is like everything in the universe that they theoretically could sell to. But then there's like the reality of like, what is your SAM that you can actually go service right now? So I think you have to be really thoughtful about like what that actually is. Like who can we actually go sell to? And look, if you have the luxury that a lot of companies don't have of having a really big SAM, this becomes, to your point, you could go over index on all the factors, right? When there's a million different companies you can go sell to. I think either way, what's important is like back to my point around focus capacity, focus capacity starts with the go-to-market strategy that you've built on the year. So how do we get the reps doing the things that we said when we sat down in a room and decided over three months, like what we need to do this year? How do we get them to do those things? And like, so for instance, you know, I was brought into Clary to scale the enterprise team. And my charter was we wanted to go further up market and we wanted to increase ASPs so we could cut down CAC payback and all that fun stuff. And so when the charter was ASPs going higher, then that made it really easy for me to say, okay, we're going to segment this by addressable ARR and we're going to focus the capacity of the team on doing deals and higher ARR bands, right? That was just part of our strategy that year. When I was building industries at Clary, it was completely different. We were going in industries that we had never sold to successfully in the past. So it was a very different charter at that point. Now, the focus was on questions like, what is the technology that they buy before they buy us? And so we were looking at firmographic, technographic data, right? Like, what was the tech stack in these industries that they already own for customers that we had? And you saw things like, oh, they purchased a MarTech, you know, like Marketo or something. And maybe they purchased Seismic or Highspot or something. And so all of a sudden, the technographic data became a really important driver in that go-to-market strategy because we wanted to make sure we weren't wasting sales cycles in companies that weren't actually going to buy us at the end of them. And so I, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think you have to design your go-to-market strategy and then figure out what are we trying to focus the capacity of the team to do? And then what, you know, how do we segment territories based on that? I got a question for you, Anthony. There were times at Outreach where we got really cute and we spent a lot of time getting these books and trying to make everybody happy. And then there were times where we're just kind of like, we don't got time for this. Let's like get this thing out easy peasy. Quick question. In each of those scenarios, how much do you think rep complaints varied in the two scenarios? The answer is zero. Everybody still complained no matter how much time. So you help me like, where's the mark where, hey, we're putting too much effort, y'all, because it's just nothing's going to happen if we keep thinking about this forever. It's not going to be perfect. Everybody's still going to be happy. You know, the worst reps say they don't have enough accounts. And that's what most reps say. The best reps say, I need less accounts. And so how are you determining the level of work and how much time you put into all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, you had the benefit of being at outreach through multiple phases of growth. I think in the early days, as my CEO Dave now talks about, like you're kind of in pirate ship mode. As you grow up, you go into aircraft carrier mode, as he calls it. And so I think being really self-aware of where you're at and your growth stage as a company and like 
again, you only have so many calories to spend. And the earlier you are, the less calories you actually have. And so I don't think there's a consistent answer for everyone, like on how do you know what, you know, how much time to spend on this. I think for me, like the driver behind designing territories in the way that we're talking about is running a predictable revenue machine. You know, if we're back to the days where money isn't free. Like if you're a startup right now, venture capital isn't just pouring in, you know, from the waterfalls around the canyon. So like if you're going to run an efficient business, you have to run a predictable revenue machine right now. And I really think that starts with trying to be as thoughtful and intentional as possible with how you're building territories. So I think you need to like put a lot of thought into this up front, no matter, you know, what you're doing, but depending on the size of your SAM and things like that, like that'll probably dictate how much energy you really need to put into this. The smaller your SAM, the more calories you probably have to put into making sure like people are actually touching the right accounts. Yeah, I think it's spot on where in the early stages, when everyone's getting 500 account plus books, it's like, <laughs> guys, like stop arguing over who gets their 17th portion of gravy on your plate. There's going to be a day when this is like 15 accounts. So like shove it and go eat while you can get fat today. All right. So I totally agree, especially in the early stages. But when you're dividing 40 accounts across four reps, like you don't want to screw that up. And so I hear you there. I have a question on this one, which is a couple of tactical ones, actually. The first is oftentimes when you're cutting books, very rarely is someone just getting a brand new book where they lost all of their previous accounts and they're getting all new accounts. There is usually the concept of holdovers or maybe you lose some accounts, you gain some new ones. What are some best practices around holdovers specifically? How many new accounts will a rep typically get? And how many accounts will reps have to give away? And are there any parameters around giving those things away? Well, one, I'll give a plug to you know my former company, Clary. With the visibility that I got into the activity actually going into those accounts, Clary gave me within the product. Now I'm a Clary customer, you know, at Tropic. So it was really helpful right now also. But having visibility into like how much time people actually spent in those accounts really helps because you'll have every rep say, I prospected the, you know what, I didn't account for the last six months. And then I'll go look at it and I'm like, you sent them eight emails over a six month period. Like, first off, if that's what you think prospecting, they should have an account. I was like, we should talk. So that like taking a data-driven approach with all the activity data that's out there now, whether it's in Clary or anywhere else, really helps to like get a starting place where you like, we would literally build a bucket and say, there is no one who can dispute it with us to like these accounts should change hands, period. Like you don't get an argument if you haven't been actually working these accounts in the way that, you know, we think you should. So that you'd be surprised how big that bucket is. You know, then you want to just take a thoughtful approach. Like you always want what's best for the account, right? So if I get too worried, I get worried about like super rigid hold policies, right? Where it's like you get five holds or whatever that looks like. If we are super engaged in... 12 accounts in that rep's territory and we're about to rip seven of them away because we have a five account hold policy. Like, I think it's important to have a policy, but be flexible on optimizing first for the customer, second for the reps, third for the company is kind of how, how I think about it. And usually, you know, having some guidelines like that, you can kind of work through the hold stuff. But my takeaway that's like probably the more aha moment is use activity data to pressure test, you know, what's actually happening in those accounts, who they actually have relationships with. And you'd be surprised how many are pretty easy to just kind of rip out and put in other people's hands. 
Yeah. I mean, what we did at PAVE is we were growing really quickly. And so books were constantly getting cut. And so if we knew someone was going to get hired in three months, we would actually cut some extra books just so that we didn't have to do this rip and replace constantly. But what we did is we said, okay, we're going to look at all your active open ops. And then from there, there's sort of what's left. And we did have a five to 10 holdover policy. But then the reps that are really, really good could still go through an approval process to get more, but they needed to prove that they had active contact, they were working these deals, all of this stuff. So I never want to penalize a rep for doing a good job of working their territory. But at the same time, I don't want everyone just hoarding everything and going through a million different pr approvals. So I think it's important to have a policy to your point, but then allow for flex in that to reward the top reps who actually work in their territory. And to be fair, honestly, a lot of the best reps... You guys ever play like Cards Against Humanity or, or anything like that? <laughs> you know when you have a bunch of like crappy cards in your hand and like you just replace one per hand? And so I feel like the best reps look at their territory like that. Even though they're working some of these accounts, they might know like better that they want to get rid of them because they've been working on them. They're like, they're never going to buy. Like, And so I think a lot of the better reps were actually excited to be able to swap it out and take a shot at accounts that other people like may have been having a harder time with and like get fresh eyes on these accounts. So, yeah, but I agree with you. The uh, four-letter word for ops and revenue leadership is holdover op. I bet they close at a 2% rate max. Everybody wants them. I've been working this op. I should close it. You get the holdover. Never closes. Usually goes silent within two days. So, I don't know, man. I think everybody gets you know, they're underwear in a wad too much trying to think about this stuff. Here's the thing. The next meeting is your best meeting. So like, just take the next meeting and let's roll. You know what I'm saying? Go get that next meeting. You know what people don't realize about holdover ops? There's another name for them. They're called slipped ops. Well, it's, <laughs> it's rarely an op that like, you know, it's closed date started in the new fiscal year that you're in or whatever. It's slipped into that year. And so it's funny. I've done a lot of slip deal analysis. Like a lot of what we helped companies with at Clary was like getting a handle on slips. And same thing. Like it's funny when companies have great linearity in the first like three weeks of a quarter, like you just slipped a bunch of deals out of the last quarter, like be better at closing. But anyway, yeah, I'm with you, Mark. A lot of times those deals that are holdover ops, they get a lot of calories at like the prime part of the quarter and then they don't end up closing. Mark, would you just end up ripping them? Because we had about a 45-day deal cycle at PAVE. So I would say like 90 days, they move no matter what. But would you just rip them right away? No, I gave a period and then I'd rip them. Yep. Yeah, we moved to late stage only. Like had to be like S3 plus where there was a lot of our last call together guys. But we had really clear stage definitions around, you know, there had to be a path to securing budget and things like that to get it to stage three. So yeah, we used to be S2 plus, we moved it to S3 plus, you know, after watching a lot of these things just not close. Well, we just finished the most nerdy 25 minutes of 30 minutes to President's Club Leadership Edition that's ever existed. <laughs> so I do want to, before we go, just talk about one other thing that I think that you do that's really, really interesting, which is moments that matter. And so you've kind of created this concept that says, in most meetings, there's one, two, or three things that you need to identify and just absolutely nail as a seller. And you need to build the whole meeting around that. What I'm interested in is the seller level that you decide that. Is that like the sales leadership level? Are these like known areas inside the sales process? Like how do you come up with a moment that matters? Or is it just like a rep looking at their next meeting and making some calls? Well, I think it can be both. 
since we're talking to a bunch of leaders here, I'll give you where the concept came from, and then I'm going to answer your question, because I think this is a really important thing for leaders to think about. I learned moments that matter. I used to sell HR technology, and I was selling to Cisco, or my team was selling to Cisco at least. And Cisco has a really innovative HR philosophy. They came up with this concept called moments that matter, where they thought through what are the points in an employee's career that when they leave our company, they're going to remember, they're going to talk about. And it's things like the very first conversation you have with the company, it's your first day on the job, it's when you go on maternity leave or paternity leave, it's when you leave the company, when you exit the company. And so they sat down as a company and said, what are the moments that matter across the employee life cycle that we want to be really, really intentional about creating experiences around? And then they literally would have like a committee where if they were making any decisions that impacted that moment, it literally had to go through a committee to say like, okay, how do we want to design this? So like, for instance, if you were leaving Cisco, they called it like my legacy. Like, what is the legacy that we wanted to create to that employee? And they, they'll do things like bring people back on interview panels who left the company for that job and like do all kinds of things like that. That always stuck with me that like the intentionality that they took around these really important moments. I've taken that and embedded in a lot of different ways how I lead. And so I just wanted to give you that just like as you think about as a leader, the what are the moments that matter just that you want to have with your team as a leader, something to think about. As relates to your question, I think, you know, as a team, there's probably some moments that like we want to make sure that we're delivering on in a world class way every single time we sell. And so you can probably define that as a group and say, hey, what do we want to be known as like anytime someone sees that, like that they're going to go talk about it. For this, like the concept I was talking about here more is actually meeting specific. Every meeting is different for like what you want to happen at the end of that meeting. Like the outcome that maybe you're driving in a sales meeting is I want the head of procurement to go tell her CFO, you need to come look at this software. And so the moment that matters might be, hey, you know, I got to get this in front of Alyssa, my CFO. That's the moment that matters. And Armand, you might remember this. We talked about this back in the day on the Rep podcast. We'll literally put those moments that matter on a slide at the beginning of the meeting, where in quotations, it says, hey, if I do my job well, you're going to walk out of here saying, Alyssa really needs to see this. You're also going to say, geez, I really like spending time with Anthony. When you go do that at the beginning of a meeting, it's forcing their brain to think differently about like what's about to come in that presentation. And now they're actually listening and engaged and, and you can actually create those moments much easier than if they're like waiting for the demo to kick off, if that makes sense. All right, Anthony. Well, we talked about a lot of good habits here, but unfortunately we are not 52 minutes to President's Club. And so we do have to move to the final question. And the final question is, talked about the good habits, but what is one bad habit that you believe every sales leader should break today to make all revenue teams out there a little bit better? I think probably the habit that happens most often, certainly for first-time leaders, it's knowing when to turn the knob from coach to advisor, right? Like my CEO at Clary, Andy Byrne, he would say, you know, take a board of directors approach to leadership. Listen first, facilitate second, ask questions third, advise fourth, make decisions fifth. And certainly as an early leader, right, like a lot of times you don't give probably the autonomy that you could and should to your team. You want to jump in and lead from the front and make decisions. I had a really hard time with this. Like I just wanted to be in the problem and be part of the solution. And so I would say like that's probably the biggest mistake that most leaders make early in their career is thinking that they need to show and be right there and like doing things for their reps or with their reps. 
and not giving enough autonomy for them to learn and grow on their own. And so my advice would be take a board of directors style of leadership like Andy told me to do. And it's still a work in progress for me, I promise. But that was really helpful advice. I wish I would have gotten way earlier. Awesome. Well, Anthony, phenomenal show. Welcome back to the show again. And everyone, hang on for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Cheers, folks. Your Zoom Info Actionable Insight Tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how ZoomInfo helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by ZoomInfo's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now, we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox if I don't get a reply in two days. That means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two-day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time every time, you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. All righty, Mark, what'd you think? I thought it was great, man. I think there's some really interesting concepts in there around book of business construction. And then, you know, Anthony's whole thing of moment that matters, he told that story about Cisco. And I felt like a little inspired by that. Like, what do I want to do that's memorable? Where are points of like, one of my reps goes on a parental leave. Like, that's a great moment. Like, just checking in like a couple weeks afterwards and asking for baby pictures and then, you know, hemming and hawing about how cute their little new kid is. You know, that kind of stuff really matters and intentionality always leads to success. So I just love that little concept he had. So folks, if you like this one, the same trio, me, Mark, and Anthony actually did a webinar on forecasting a month or two ago, give or take. And so go check that one out in the show notes. If you like what you saw here, Anthony is a forecasting savant and it was me, Mark, and him talking about another controversial topic in addition to territories forecasting. And if you like this one, folks, stay tuned for next week. Cheers. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes.
Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes.